Hello and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 33. I like to think of it as compound interest. I can create the idea now. I can put in the work on the front end so that I can empower people down the road. I don't want to teach additive. I want to teach problem solving. And additive is a tool for problem solving. I think it's more than a mental shift. You have to start to cross that manufacturing bridge to get there. You have to take people with you. You have to think that way and you have to try it. And if you don't ever try it or invest into a printer, you're missing out. You're missing out on some potentially huge wins. So get started. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within design, manufacturing, education, and our lives? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 33rd episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays. Our guest today is Eric Richardson, Continuous Improvement and Quality Manager for Intertape Polymer Group. He draws on a strong history of driving change and process improvements in fast-paced manufacturing industries, from aerospace to Tier 1 automotive to products for packaging, and lately he has been discovering ways to leverage professional desktop FFF at his Tremont-based factory in Utah, and across IPG as a whole as a part of collaborating with their business transformation office. These 3D printing projects also align with Eric's lifelong passion for fixing stuff that's broken. So first of all, Eric, thank you so much for joining Talking Out of today. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Matt. Glad to be here, and thanks for the invitation. My name is Eric Richardson. I work with Intertake Polymer Group. I am out of our Utah facility. My title is the Continuous Improvement and Quality Manager. So what that means is I work with our corporate team on 3D printing. Uh, I helped vet and decide some of the printers that we've chosen for our facility. Uh, so how did you first encounter 3D printing yourself? So my personal 3D printing journey started, uh, I think I pulled up the date. I think it was about 2004. My university had a 3D printer and I was allowed to make one cubic inch 3D print. So I made a little lazy boy sofa with a little recline handle and I was able to fit diagonally into that little cube. I still have it. I should have grabbed it as a prop, but you know, that was when I started. And then with work, we bought ours, I think 2019, 2020, somewhere in that range. And so long gap between college and professional. What inspired you? I mean, you had a, a background studying engineering, I guess, at the, at the beginning. What led you into the specific role that you ended up picking? So mechanical engineering is my background, and that's where I chose because mechanical is awesome. And if anybody's out there listening, just be a mechanical engineer and make the world a better place. But for me, we built go-karts as a family growing up. So I learned to weld when I was eight, and we've built sand rails growing up on the West Coast, and we built go-karts and things like that. So if something was broke, you can fix it. And that's where I wanted to do maybe some computer engineering, maybe thought about to buy a mechanical. But really, at the end of the day, I like to fix stuff that's broke and I like to go fast. So I was part of the university's go-kart team and we competed across the country. And so mechanical is just a good fit for me. But really mechanical is nice because it's kind of like the business degree into the engineering world. You know, you don't have to stay in strictly a mechanical design role, which I have experience doing, but really it allows me to do continuous improvement. That's what I was hired to do for this company and uh, really implement our lean manufacturing system. It's called Intertape Performance System, IPS. That's what I did because I had a good background, a technical background that's prepared me for things such as 3D printing. For those who are unfamiliar with quality management and continuous improvement, 
Tell us more about what that means. What, what is the scope of that kind of role? It's a big question there. So my company wasn't running very well, probably about a decade ago. My facility wasn't running well, and the company decided to launch their Intertape Performance System. And it looks at a machine focus approach. So we pick a model machine in the department because we have I don't know, 10 different manufacturing lines from small little converting lines to 100 feet long to 80 feet tall, huge monsters. But really, you look at improving the safety of that machine. How can the machine hurt somebody? Then you look at quality. How does our product interact with a machine? And what are some potential defects? So there's the mechanical side, but then there's an equipment optimization piece. How do we make the machine run 100 miles an hour and never have to stop and still somehow change the oil along the way? But then there's visual communications, which I actually feel is the most important. Well, safety is always number one. And since I'm the quality guy, quality is always number two. But communication visually, so I can know how is the machine running? Am I on target? Do I need to provide resources for that individual or for that machine? Are there issues there? And so there's some other different pillars that we have. But really, it's all about let's make this machine run the exact way that it was supposed to from a manufacturer. And if along the way we can make it run better, that's a win. So now you do that from machine to machine throughout the facility. And then there's all sorts of milestones. And I've been an IPS practitioner for some of our new acquisition sites, but the approach is the same. Let's keep our employees safe. Let's ship the best quality product that we possibly can. And then let's do it as fast as we can while still being profitable. So now looking back, say 10 years ago, when 3D printing and additive manufacturing was still mostly associated with rapid prototyping and the, the, the last stage of validating a part before manufacturing process. At that time, I, I think there, was, there, there seemed to be less consideration for there being a role in quality management, but you have found a lot of ways to make use of it in your work. What do you think has changed to make 2019, 2020, this to be a kind of tool you'd reach for? We'll look at how I first started experiencing 3D printing. I was at a university. So you have big dollar machines. They're expensive. They're large compared to the Ultimaker S5 that sits on a little desk. This was almost like a CNC multi-axis machine. Like the 3D printer we had at school was ginormous and I'm sure costs were expensive. I was only allowed one cubic inch. I think that tells you a lot. I'm building spur gears and I'm, I filled my entire bed. Like I could have a bigger bed because I'm not worried about space versus dollar. I'm worried about what's the value of that print or the tool that I'm creating. And so the big one for me is probably scale. I'm assuming anybody can go online, buy some cheap 3D printer for a couple hundred bucks and probably get really good results out of it. Now there's going to be some limitations, of course, but I think that's the biggest one is they're affordable. You can have them, you can have personal projects. A lot of people have them in their homes. But really, when you start to apply high dollar manufacturing commercial equipment, and if you can start to get some wins in that space, the scale is just a lot different. So you can really get some high dollar wins from relatively small machine. Considering some of the challenges that you're, you're now exploring ways to solve with additive, how would you have addressed them using conventional tools before you got a 3D printer? It's a good question. I got a pilot machine, so we were trying to explore the space. And so we bought three different printers. We bought an Ultimaker and two competitors for just normal FDM. And we're trying to figure out our use cases. And we did our homework beforehand. So before the machine ever showed up, we already identified five or 10 projects where we can hit the ground running as soon as we turn the thing on. But our first project was really a prototype. We needed to hold some knives. We convert big rolls of plastic to smaller rolls of plastic for our customers, and they go fast. And we're going to be holding a knife in the middle of a web, cutting the plastic, and then the operator standing on the other side. 
So this has the potential to become a weapon. If a knife holder broke and fell or got sucked into a machine somehow and shot out the other side with exposed blades, that would be, it'd be disastrous and horrible in every possible way. So what we did is we were going to design a blade holder. And normally you'd make up a sketch. You'd send it out to our machine shop across the street and they'd start to machine something. They'd bring it back to us and we'd find out our geometry is wrong. So that's garbage. Make a new iteration. We'll send it back to them and they'd make something. And then again, it would come back and we may or may not be right. For us, we decided to do that prototyping process uh, with a 3D printer. It was our first project. I don't feel comfortable really with some of the plastics or materials in terms of I don't ever want to have to worry about it. And safety is number one, no matter what. So saving what a hundred or 200 bucks on steel parts versus plastic parts, my final product was not going to be a 3d printed component, but I was able to iterate four or five, maybe even six. I can't remember how many, but many iterations very quickly in the matter of a few hours, I now have a prototype part in my hand for just a couple bucks. I can go confirm geometry. So when you compare. I don't know, maybe a hundred dollars. And I think that's being conservative per iteration. I did say five iterations at least. So there's $500 saved. That's assuming I could even get my parts on time. So now I can 3d print in a couple hours. So it takes me, you know, production time total. And I'm in it like 24 ish versus sending it out to a fabrication shop or a machine shop where I'm looking at five iterations. We'll say they can have a two day turnaround, which I don't believe at all. Now I'm waiting 10 days versus total of 24 hours. And again, I'm saving money throughout the entire process. So there's a huge difference between additive and sending it out for conventional machining. What are some of the parts that you've been printing so far? We, as a company, have a lot of different printers. We have 14 different Ultimakers throughout the country. Actually, throughout the world, we have some on our India site too. But for me, really, our win is kind of smaller prototype parts. Yeah, I have a few production components that I can just throw in and mix in with helping some of our supplier lead times. But really, like I said, our first use case and our, it was a really big use case was that knife holder. I figured out my geometry. And if you looked at iteration one versus iteration five, night and day difference, like they're not even the same geometry. Like anyways, they're completely different. So that was a big win for us. But some of the other things we're printing are, I'm printing a carbon fiber spur gear right now. So we have a, about a, six inch nylon gear that we're consuming through and wearing through faster than we'd like. Plus it's $500 a pop. And uh, if I can 3D print it out of carbon fiber, it costs me, I think it was like 10 bucks or something. That'd be a huge win. And I don't have to wait for long lead times, but some of our manufacturing components, some little plungers. So they're like, they depress basically an air nozzle. So an inflation shaft that holds our cardboard cores so it can deflate and the machine can doff and cycle out. So pretty wide, but I'd say probably 50% of what we're doing here is prototyping. It's avoiding that machine shop. It's figuring out our geometries so that we can have the best path forward. You asked me about what would I do traditionally before I had additive. So again, what we're doing here is we have a, a wide web of plastic and we're cutting it into lanes. You have a hot knife that both melts and cuts at the same time. Well, the problem is the plastic gets warm and it melts. So now it's kind of molten, but not really like liquid. It's just, it's sticky. And so you have to separate the plastic and cool it and just for long enough for it to not stick back and reseal on the other edge of a hot knife. So in traditional manufacturing, this is what one of my colleagues made uh, in just a wedge, you know, this is going to sit in the machine with a little clip and slides in and the film comes across the top. And the problem that we had is this wedge is way too big. So now what you're doing is you're really like scrunching the plastic as you're trying to deflect mm. and 
that's traditional manufacturing in my mind. What can I put on a mill? What can I put on a lathe? What can I do here for a prototype? So that's option one. And I was talking with my colleague and I go, why are we doing it that way? I have a 3D printer. I can do whatever I want. And this is the same approach. So a knife blade sits right up here on this kind of this front lip. And really I need a barrier. So I just need a simple wall and it does not need to be thick. It's just enough to deflect. But instead of thinking just two Ds, I need to spread the film. Why don't I lift the film off of, uh, it's going to be sliding on a roller and that'll let air flow underneath and it'll help with cooling from both sides. And that's what this theory is. And it's the shark fin and it just clips right in. It's the same piece, just completely different approaches. You look at a gap here of, I think this one was almost a half inch, a little less. And my gap here is like a 10th of an inch, a little less than an eighth. And so I don't have to deflect or damage my kind of sticky or molten plastic as it's coming off this hot knife. I can do exactly what needs to be done and it'll ride here and I don't have to be perfectly aligned. It's just, it's a way to think in 3D. It's a way to think in, okay, if I don't have to deal with traditional manufacturing methodologies, what can I accomplish? And anyways, this has been a win. We're still prototyping it. There's a couple of things we're working on now, but the theory of I'm going to deflect in one axis versus I'm going to move an angle in 3D space. It's a big difference compared to traditional manufacturing versus 3D printing. I'd love to hear more about like thinking in 3D as you're applying it to this. Because I think I, I see what you're saying from my, my experiences using the technology. But it seems like this really has given you a chance to try some other strategies that might have taken a lot more steps to get to. Yeah. So my background, before I moved out to Utah, I was out where I grew up in Washington and Oregon, I was an operations manager for a fabrication company. So we had lasers, we had presses, we had a lot of traditional steel bending type tools. But what was unique is lasers. Again, a lot of people think in producing parts in terms of machines and lathes, but if you can flatten something into 2D, you can do any geometry you want. So now I can let a laser draw complex angles for me. I don't have to worry about tooling or that type of space. So my work experience has helped me think outside of a traditional mill and lathe. Now, when you come to a 3D printing, my background in mechanical is I can design anything perfect. And what my dad actually taught me is he goes, you can measure it with a micrometer, you can mark it with a crown, but you end up cutting it with an ax. <laughs> and it's just, <laughs> yeah. I can design something perfect, but I can't make it perfect. 3D printing, I can get a whole lot closer than I used to be able to. So thinking in 3D is... My colleague now is managing the 3D printer for my site, but I have a lot of those discussions with him. Hey, what projects are you working on? Oh, I'm doing this. Well, what if you did that approach? Oh yeah. He hadn't thought of it that way because his background's machining. He is a fantastic machine operator. He's got extensive military background. He's a smart, brilliant man. But again, it's how do we get to that higher level? How do we think outside of the box? And how do we think in 3D space? We've all seen the design studies where you built a bracket, it's basically just holding a fan or something, and they turn it organic, where you get rid of your perimeter box. You forget the, I'm going to remove material. I'm going to add just this cute little tree up to where my support location needs to be. And you get huge wins in terms of speed and like airflow if you're looking for those types of things. And they're awesome looking. They're pretty sweet to put as a design study on your desk and say, yeah. this is 3D space. This is traditional machining. Even just uh, communicating about these things. You can drive around with a 3D model and like point, but it's a different thing to, to really hold it in the hand and navigate it and say, I'm talking about this here. Oh, okay. I, I get it. You don't have to have the right word for it. They don't have to be yeah. an expert at understanding CAD. Exactly. And it's fun. And so you're spending a couple bucks 
And so some people worry about this usage cost of a 3D printer. Well, filament's really pretty cheap. All right, imagine if I sent one part to a machine shop for $100, we'll say. I can buy two to four rolls of whatever filament I need and roll lasts you a long time. So yeah, I can spend a dollar or two here, but it's only a dollar. Like honestly, in the manufacturing environment, you spend more than that in downtime. Your machine's down an hour. Uh, yeah, you've lost 10,000 bucks. So anything you can do to bring a line back up or build a prototype to better communicate, to better explain what a machine looks like and how it's interacting with its function, 3D printing can do all of that. I haven't got to that space yet. I would like to design our machines and have a full 3D printed. Here's what a, a folding machine looks like. Here's what a, an extrusion machine looks like. Cool. We haven't got there. We're still on the manufacturing side and making widgets that have a function uh, in the manufacturing space. So there are a bunch of printers in use across the organization globally. If, if you wouldn't mind, walk us through uh, how things work at your site. Like where, where are they located? Who, who uses them? How do you use them? Why don't we start locally? Yeah, so again, we're in Tremont, Utah. We have one Ultimaker S5 Pro. It was chosen for a couple different reasons because Cure is the number one slicer in the world, the most common, the most used, and Ultimaker has that relationship with Cure. So they have the software and the hardware, and the theory is I want them to work together. And we chose Altimaker versus some of their competitors because of default profiles. I don't want to have to learn how to 3D print. I just want it to work. And yes, I understand how to change some profiles. I understand how to, you know, manipulate a print and change some of the settings. I get that, but anybody can figure that out. But figuring out temperatures and feed rates and speeds, that's what Altimaker and Cura does really well. So that's why we ended up buying so many of them. Now in my facility, I want to spend the time thinking in 3D space, not physically getting something to my hands. I want to click go. And a lot of our wins are prototyping. I showed you one of our slit seals. I can show other pieces too, but really it's what can I do to replace components on the floor? So my consumables, and this is where I think the big money is, and we'll talk about this point later, I'm sure, but a consumable is where I design my part once and I just print it hundreds of times. And every time I'm printing it, I'm just making, saving a hundred bucks here, a hundred bucks again and again. And that's how I'm paying off the printer, which we paid off in less than a year. So one of those components, it just literally slides into a cardboard core. It's three inches in diameter. And we have a machine that comes in with a knife and just cuts against, it's a cut stop. That's all it is. Well, these cost between a hundred to $200, depending on the three or six inch size. So now I can 3D print something for, and I believe my cost was like $1.40 and $1.96 were my printed costs. And I don't have to order from Europe where a lot of these slitting and converting machinery manufacturers live. And I don't have to deal with the long boat and I don't have to deal with minimum order quantities. So how does it work in my site? Well, I've validated the model and we have them on a jump drive. So if an operator or a maintenance employee needs a tool or a part, he can just go to the Ultimaker. He can just click load from jump drive from USB, click print, and it's done. That's it. He doesn't have to interface with a computer. He doesn't have to interface with CAD or slicers or Cura. He just gets the part that he needs when the print's done. So that's how we're doing it in our facility. Now, globally for Intertape Polymer Group, we just signed up for the digital factory. So now all of our printers are working and getting them linked. Now my employee doesn't have to physically go to the printer to open up a part on a USB drive that maybe I didn't update. Maybe my geometry isn't the most current. I found in it, 
an opportunity and made a change and forgot to do that piece. Now he can just go online to the digital factory and do the exact same thing. He can log in from his computer. He can say, I need this part. He can look at a print of it. He can move it around on the little preview screen and click go. And maybe he wants it out of PLA. Maybe he wants it out of carbon fiber nylon. Maybe he wants it out of a different material. And if those have already been vetted by a design team, then he just clicks go. That's it. And that's a huge time saver where, yes, we have parts and spares, but if I run out on a weekend, he can just take care of it. And I don't have to physically come in and set a printer up and create this part. So that's how we're using it locally within Tremont and Utah. That's a hugely helpful portrait. Thank you for, for going through this. I was wondering if in this process of thinking outside the box and, and getting these, these advantages for prototyping, et cetera, you had any sort of pleasant surprises from your experiences where you're like, oh, wow, actually 3D printing works for X, Y, or Z better than I predicted. Well, prototyping was one of them, actually. We put together a use case, and like I said, we piloted three machines, and one of them was an Altimaker that ultimately ended in Utah, initially ended in Utah, and is still there. But we were chosen as one of those three evaluation sites because of our use case, and our use case was what consumable can I replace with a 3D printed part? And I was honest with our corporate team. I don't have a lot of widgets that I feel I can do. Yes, I have some quick wins. I have my list of five to 10 things of where I can have a win. And then when it came in, yes, I've quickly validated my use case, but I'm saving a hundred bucks here, a hundred bucks there on that cut block that I just talked about. But that's not this multi-million dollar idea. That's not this huge opportunity. It's little incremental wins. And my consumption rate on that part's once a month. I'm not gonna have a huge payback. But really my payback was prototyping. Actually, let me just print that up real quick. Let me just see. Let's physically put it in my hand. Maybe this is my mechanical background, but I think everybody's mechanical. You know, I can show them something on the screen. I can give somebody a print. Here you go. Here's your isometric view. Here's your left and top and right. And they'll be like, I, I think I know, but I could physically put it in their hand. This is what I'm talking about. So prototyping has been really helpful. I can sketch something when I'm trying to work with some of our employees, some production employees on the floor, or I could just print it and say, I have a wedge. It's going to split your plastic. It's a slit seal, just like the screenshot I shared. This is what it looks like. Do you think this will work? Oh no, I think we need to change. Great. I would have loved if you had told me that when I was designing it, but you know what? I'm out an hour or two and a dollar fifty or something to print this little piece. Not a problem. And we can get that communication very fast by having a prototype part in our hand. So that was a revelation for me. And I think that's the revelation that everyone should take away is you don't have to have this multi-million dollar idea. You don't have to have, I'm going to plug a 3D printed part for this production part. No, that you're missing the point. You're missing the opportunity. And the opportunity is I can use this daily. I can make prototypes. I can make production components. I can think in 3D, even if this isn't a part that I'm ultimately going to use. Again, I can put it in my hand and I can compare and I can talk to the subject matter experts and I can take it to my management team and say this or that and get feedback and share and collect all that knowledge into my next iteration quickly and for cheap. Now that you're playing with some of the other materials that like the composite materials, et cetera, that you, you were exploring. Have you had interesting discoveries there where a part has handled more stresses than you expected or anything like that? A little bit. So I actually kind of want to take your question a little differently. We use all the different materials. Altmakers with the material handling station is great. So we print an ABS, TPU, PETG, PLA, 
carbon fiber nylon, regular nylon, CPE plus, PVA. We print all of those. So for me, I wanted to print a clear component. So we bought PETG and my prints haven't turned out quite the way I've wanted to. I'm trying to over extrude to get rid of the air and capture and not make it look foggy. So that's been interesting where I, my print's coming out, but it's not right for my application yet. And coming into the carbon fiber nylon, we bought the Ruby nozzle and we have all the tools set up and we're hanging our filament on the back of the printer. We're doing the things that we need to, but I don't love the print profiles that are defaulted. So this is an opportunity for me to learn custom profiles, to work with our vendor, to work with Altimaker, and we'll start to grow with the capabilities of the printer. The printer's already there, but I'm really growing my additive capabilities as a designer. So anyways, we're working on that. So how have your colleagues been responding to 3D printing? So I'll talk locally and then we'll go globally. So locally, uh, I am the CI leader, you know, quality guy. I'm kind of outside. I don't work in the engineering department. I'm not one of our process engineers or design engineers, but I'm the one that has SolidWorks installed on my computer. So I kind of do. <laughs> we don't do a lot of design work locally within my facility because a lot of people didn't understand its value or the opportunity for wins. So I would create a prototype and that's where this first knife holder came out is exclusively or very closely with our maintenance manager. And I go, let's try this, let's try this. And he was able to see because of his background being machining, how fast parts came out and how quick we were able to iterate. And it slid on a dovetail. So you have some kind of unique geometry, which is a little harder to cut on a mill, but he was able to grow with this opportunity and very quickly jumped over to the additive team. And so awesome. it's good because his office is a little bigger than mine. His is downstairs versus uh, upstairs. And that's where the printer got set up. It got set up in his office. And so I'm glad it's fully enclosed. I'm glad it's not loud. And I'm glad he likes it because otherwise you just have this ugly stepchild sitting in your office that randomly turns on and off. He was on board and he's who I transitioned some of the design work over to, some of the printing and maintenance and those types of pieces where he is designing components, he's printing, he's on our corporate team, he's helping with everything that we've talked about so far. So that's locally and getting more than just me on board was really helpful for the entire facility. So now everybody knows we have a 3D printer. Hey, what about this? What about that? And you get a lot more, I'll say synergy again, we're combining knowledge so that we can be you know, advanced greater than where we were individually. And so and production employees can come talk to me. So that's locally. Now, corporately, we had to have a different approach. One, to put in over $100,000 in printers throughout the world. So we needed to get buy-in from corporate people, from VPs, from higher-ups. And we were able to very quickly prove out our use cases in those first three printers. And again, it was, they want to see dollars and cents. They're running a business. That's what their, their responsibilities to their shareholders and customers. And so that's where we had to prove it in dollars and cents. So when you're looking at couple thousand dollars per printer. How can I get the gain? And in our company, if you can have an ROI less than two years, it's a lot easier to approve. Well, we were showing gains in one of my sister facilities in Michigan. They paid off their printer in like three months. They already had huge wins and you're like, okay, this is a pilot. We pilot it in three different facilities, make three different products, and all of them are on track to have their printers paid off in the first year. And one of the sites is almost on track to pay off all the printers in that first year. And it was really nice where last year we had over $100,000 savings in all the printers around the world. And we were a little shy of our goal, but we were really close and saving literally $100,000 of cash in one year from people who a lot of them didn't even have CAD packages on their computers. They didn't have any idea of a lot of these maintenance guys were running the printers in these facilities where not necessarily a design background. 
and they're still getting wins and they're still seeing success and they're still excited. And when you can have that excitement, you can build upon it. So yeah, hundred grand saved this year. As we start to think in this 3D space, that hundred grand can turn to $200,000 year over year and just keep growing. Oh, that's a fantastic story. You know, you're mentioning that now you're getting ideas from other folks that know that you have a, a 3D printer there. What kind of tools are people using to design and share their ideas? Are, are they getting help from those who are already experienced in CAD? Or are some of the folks who now have access to this tool picking up new techniques and packages themselves? So we had our three design guys, I was one of those, where we piloted one of those three printers. So we became the subject matter expert. And I'm going to use we, meaning myself loosely, because our Michigan guy, he has, I think, three printers at his house. And they're set up for different materials and they're still open beds. But when he got a printer, he's like, oh, I know exactly what to do. And he hit the ground running like he killed us. He was so much faster, smarter thinking in the 3D space, designing like he, he just got it. So when I had slicing questions, we had an internal expert where I was able to go out to my Michigan colleague and he was able to help me with slicing. We started doing some composites and that's where I reached out to our vendor, excellent support. And also with Ultimaker, I reached out directly to the manufacturer and had some good support there. So that's where we developed this core competency. I enjoy it. And so I, I picked it up pretty quick. And we already had a guy who had years and years of experience personal, and now he's experienced commercially, like professionally. And now you blend those where we kind of trained the rest of our facilities. So we're switching to Ultimaker Digital Factory, and that's how we're going to share our parts. Some of our machines are in different locations. My machines are not, they're only in my facility. And uh, we're moving to that, but we just did MS Teams. We did Microsoft and we had kind of a SharePoint site where we could drop these parts and they can grab the native CAD file and make changes based on what they knew best or what fits their facility best. And we're there to help and troubleshoot. And I got somebody with zero CAD experience. I did the design work for him. I proofed the model. I sent it off to him and he's able to get production wins. He's created a widget that works for him and he didn't have to really touch a computer other than load a USB drive and push go. That's awesome. Now, you had mentioned earlier in this discussion the, the opportunity for a number of people within the whole community there to run parts if they were validated. Yeah, what is your process for validating the parts that you're running on the, at the facilities? Validation in manufacturing where I'm at is completely different than when I was doing validation for an aerospace company. When I was doing design work, you had completely different design criteria. I was also tier one automotive and I wasn't going to make a change without a thousand stamps of approval all the way back to the OEM. But for us, it's a lot easier. We have a problem and it needs to be solved. And we can take the employee to a whiteboard, have them sketch and draw. That's my preferred way. Draw what you think this should look like, because I want to make sure I understand their problem. And then once we have that, then we start to iterate. Say, okay, I think I have my design criteria. I'll put together some geometry. We'll print out a part. Then we validate it with whoever was the idea generator. So if it was the production employee, I'll take it back to them. Do you think this will work? What are your thoughts? Can I make it differently? Can I do it faster for you? So then at that point, we, as in my colleague, my maintenance manager and myself, we will prove it. We will test it. We will install it on the line. We'll check longevity. Maybe we need to change material type for a little better wear resistance, whatever. And then once we, as in, I'd say the idea owner, the production worker, the maintenance manager and myself, 
we agree on it, then at that point, it's the final project. It's approved, it's validated, then we make it available to the employee either through a digital factory or a, a USB drive. It's also shared on our server. So any of our employees have access to this particular drive and the shared drive, it's S drive, and they can just pull it open and print it. They can pull it open, it's available there. It's not hidden from them, but they don't really have access to the printer. So again, there's still some ownership where the maintenance manager works with his maintenance technicians and they're the ones that are really printing consumables. The production employee just asks maintenance, I need this part. And then we can go to our shipping receiving, see if it's in inventory, if we need to create something or order or whatever. So it, the validation is owned by us three and the actual production part that's produced on the machine is really owned mostly by the maintenance manager. It's literally in his office. The office is unlocked. You can just go in, but he knows if, hey, what are you doing in here? What's that little widget you're printing? It, it, it's pretty easy to control that. So you shared some of the materials that you've been using, which is a big catalog of materials. I actually didn't know you were using so many. That's fantastic. What are some materials that you're looking to try next or targets for the processes of developing custom profiles? For me, I really like the Ultimaker S5 Pro because of the material handling station and because it's enclosed, you know, I can climate control that print bed and control the cool down. So I have materials. If I were to guess in the company, I probably have the most materials out of everybody. Our printers are capable. So I have been doing piloting some prototyping parts out of TPU for a print block. And we've made gasket seals. So like we have some dust boots that protect parts of our components. I don't see a lot of advancement in terms of material because I feel like I already have the material. Really, it's what you alluded to. It's the print profile. It's the application of what I have. I now have the tool in front of me. How am I going to use it to accomplish my task? So on my print plate one, I really need to go to a smaller nozzle. So I'm running the standard 0.4. I love my 0.8 because <laughs> I don't have to deal with a lot of geometry issues. Not complex, just I need to part quickly. 0.8 is good enough and away we go. But I want to go to a, a 0.25. Now TPU is not going to extrude as well through that, there's some limitations, a little more stringy, but I need that resolution for creating this print plate. And there's some design criteria with our customer where I can't make my printing that much larger. And so I have to stay within this area of space. Now I can make my prints bold or whatever. So for me, it's really custom profiles is probably where I'm going to go next. I have a specific use case with a print plate. I'm gonna create a custom TPU print profile and go from there. And this is maybe part of the same question, really. What are some applications that you're looking to accomplish, maybe with some of these new profiles and beyond that you see on the near horizon for you? I like to think of it as compound interest. I can create the idea now. I can put in the work on the front end so that I can empower people down the road. I don't want to teach additive. I want to teach problem solving. And additive is a tool for problem solving. I want to create this custom profile so the cost of entry is a lot smaller. That's really why Ultimaker is awesome. Default profiles with the printer, it's capable of a lot of different things. So custom profile helps my employee accomplish their task quicker, faster, cheaper. That's a win. But they shouldn't have to fully vet out a profile. They shouldn't have to do iterative prints, running them on a micrometer or calipers to proof out on my whole size compensation. I can create a profile where I've done it all for them. And then one, it helps them. And two, it helps me on the next problem that comes up. That's a great answer. Over the course of our discussion, you've mentioned a number of things that 
you've ended up printing, uh, whether for prototyping or pieces that can be used, like dust boots and stuff, maybe with materials that you have there. So if you were to summarize the values that you see for 3D printing in terms of the pursuit of quality and continuous improvement, what would you list? I printed a Go No Go gauge this last week, and I showed you a shark fin design where we had an OEM who built our machine, and we found an opportunity for improvement. And 3D printing has had some wins there. It's harder in my facility because we're extruding raw resin pellets and nurdles into film and plastic. So a lot of my machines are basically off limits. I can't put anything plastic or nylon into an extruder. It'll just come out as an extruded part. It's just gonna, and so I have to stay on the converting side on the lower temperature side. But yeah, in terms of quality and continuous improvement, it allows my employees to be empowered. If they have an idea, I don't have to send it out to a machine shop to get a CER, to get POs and quotes. I can handle some things internally. It gets rid of some of the bureaucracy. And then it also helps with quality, like a go, no go gauge. It's just a simple, it looks like almost like a little Allen wrench key, just a little L and it's got a little shelf on it and just set it in place. If it fits, if it doesn't, that's the beauty of it. And it costs what, seven cents. And then I went out one day and I couldn't find it. So I printed them another one for seven cents. And then I went back the next day and they were both there. And it needs to be a tool to help our employees. It needs to help with our quality. And this little shark fin is going to help with my quality. And a go-no gauge is going to help with my operator to know that I had a core extension or my film wasn't perfectly centered on the roll. And it helps us to do our jobs quicker and more accurately. Excellent. So I'm going to shift now into a little bit wider perspective so in the past year, we've seen a huge uptick in uses of professional desktop 3D printers in industrial engineering, from uh, teams focused on quality management, factory ergonomics, safety, and MRO. Does that surprise you or match your experiences there? I'm not really surprised by it. COVID has collectively caused all of us to think outside the box. I'm in my home office. I used to be in it 95% of the time, and now I'm in it less than 5% of the time. I came here to take this for this podcast. And so 2020 was a learning year and 2021 has been a learning year. And I'm assuming 2022 is going to be the same. And companies are trying to figure out ways to do something differently. And they're using the chaos of the world to try to develop a plan and to try to find rationale and payoff and ROI. And they're closing offices because people don't need to be in them. I'm working on a computer. How is that different than working on a computer in an office? I have faster internet at home, so I'd rather be home anyways. And so, no, I'm not surprised that the industry and kind of the world is playing with additive technology. They should have done it before. We were fortunate enough to do it before. We had already had all of our systems installed. We had all of our printers in place. And we were lucky that we didn't have to deal with the supply chain disruption where, yeah, I think I broke apart or a glass plate or something or build bed. and. There's a long lead time to get one of those. But fortunately, when we implemented, we were pre all of that. Just out of curiosity, how, where do you see people in your field talking about 3D printing or exchanging it? You know, I, I see these, these other values for 3D printing. And so I need to bring it in and start working on it here. With IPG, we have a business transformation office. And this BTO team says, what are the new technologies that are out there? We've looked at Amazon and Google because they think differently than traditional manufacturers. So our, our business transformation office has provided both direction and leeway 
we've been given the latitude to try this. So we're doing augmented reality. We're doing smart sensors and devices. We're doing IoT 4.0. We're doing all these different things. 3D printing is part of that. So we've been given the leeway to what is out there in the industry that we're not doing that we should. Okay, how much money are you going to need? You want to pilot something? Great. We did a pilot. We probably spent $20,000 in these three printers and we devoted some people's time, which is really more expensive than the hardware costs. But we did that. And for a $20,000 investment, we found out that we can be saving $100,000 a year and we bought printers. So that's what the world should be doing is, is there something out there that you're not trying? Figure out a way to fail often and fail fast. And you're going to learn more from that failure than you are from really the success. If everything just goes perfectly, you might be so far down the road, you don't know how to handle a, a speed bump or a, a lane change. Like you're going to miss out. And yes, I had some parts that failed. So you need to try them. You need to pilot them. And 3D printing is one of those things that you can do for cheap. So same thing with 3D mapping, which is a whole different discussion where how do I do a 3D scanner so I can avoid the whole design side of the house or decide design side of the equation. Well, so if you had to offer a piece of advice to an organization on the fence about adopting additive, what would you say to them? I'd say just jump in. And I don't want to sound cliche to say, just do it. No, let's talk realistic numbers. If I bought a printer for five, 10 grand, whatever, maybe I spend some money in investing in talent and some form of CAD tool or training. Somebody who's already technical, but just needs to be elevated in terms of their skill set. We'll say 10, 15 grand. Okay. If you put in 10 to 15 grand, that's not a lot of money. We spend that on expedites or semi-trucks or logistics. We spend that on machine downtime. I mean, you're paying that in electricity for your building for every month. Like it's not a lot of capital. And if you don't make it back, I'm not going to say that's pocket change because that's still a lot of money, but you won't fail. If you fail in additive, I really feel you're failing in utilizing the tool. You can bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Additive is just a tool. And for a small investment, you should easily be able to get that back in a year or two. And if nothing else, it's a showcase tool. I'm looking in the background, I see your uh, headphone holder that's one that comes with every Altimaker. So that was the first thing we printed. We printed the little headphone stand and then we experimented with painting and plastic dipping. And we tried some things with a basic PLA print. And that alone, it's just, it helps you to think creatively and you have to make that mental shift. And I think it's more than a mental shift. You have to start to cross that manufacturing bridge to get there. You have to take people with you. You have to think that way and you have to try it. And if you don't ever try it or invest into a printer, you're missing out. You're missing out on some potentially huge wins. So get started, brainstorm some ideas and figure out a way to work on them incrementally. And don't just give up if you miss. Oh, I showed you my shark fin design, iteration six. I printed six iterations and I'm pretty sure I'm on nine now. So I've printed and tried and you have to commit to it. And so that's been very helpful for us. If I have a roadblock, I bring somebody else in and validate an idea and then we just methodically work through it. And now when somebody asks, because this is really important, you have to justify what you've done and say, this is why I did this print. This is what this has done for us. This is the money that we've saved. This is how I've grown from a failure and have that communication and documentation. And yeah, you'll be very successful moving forward. Where do you anticipate from your own thinking and exploration that companies will go with 3D printing in the coming years? 3D printing is very powerful and capable. And 
the technology is only going to get better and faster and cheaper as it starts to get more widespread adoption. In the next three years, so short term, I think companies just need FDM. Go with the filament fed. It's low cost of entry and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's companies that are already out there that have use cases. And yeah, metal is really where it's at, but that cost of entry is huge. And you have big companies abandoning their machinery and selling them off at a loss when start with FDM, figure out where your niche is. Yes, I would love to print metal parts, but I understand the cost of entry from 10 grand to a million dollars or whatever. That's significant. And unless you have a concrete ROI, you're not going to get approval from a board or from senior higher ups and VPs and whatnot. So I do see the industry in the next few years, FDM printers being both in people's homes on the residential side, the consumer side, but also in the professional and the manufacturing side. And I think we'll, let's leave it there. Eric, thank you so much for joining and talking out of today. This was a fantastic discussion. And I think the listeners are going to really pick up on a lot of things uh, that are helpful to them. Thank you so much, Matt, for uh, reaching out to me and letting me know that my story is a little unique, that just get in and try and you're going to start to see some wins and you're going to learn lessons and you're paying for knowledge. And in the end, you can probably build a bunch of widgets on your line and save a whole bunch of money and everybody's happy. That's the hope. Thank you again to Eric Richardson from Intertape Polymer Group for joining us today. We hope that you have enjoyed our 33rd episode for the Talking Additive podcast. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag Talking Additive, all one word. Talking Additive launches new episodes each Tuesday. Next week, join us to meet Kawe Lim from Imaginables and Josh Sacris from RMIT Racing. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at talkingadditive.com. Thank you again to Eric. Our series producer is Hannah Gabrielle Tacchini, studio manager David Roberson, Music and sound mix by Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbird's Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer, Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.